May I invite you to pitch your mental and spiritual tents with me for a few moments tonight. Around the Gospel by Mark, chapter 14. May I remind you that this is not what Christ would say if he were here, but what he is saying because he is here. I have chosen to speak this week on a biographical series. And tonight, the man who made mistakes. This should not be too difficult to identify with. But I'm sure that we may profit by the failure of others. Before we look into the word of God, shall we look to the Lord in a moment of expectant prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee that thy word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray once more that it shall probe and penetrate deep into hearts and minds, and there bring forth fruit. We thank thee for the Holy Spirit, who not only authored thy word, but who has been dispatched from heaven to guide us into all truth, and to apply that truth to our experience. We pray, our Father, once more that thou wilt teach us thy truth. No matter what that truth may do to us or demand of us, we pray that thou wilt dislodge our prejudices, that thou wilt stretch our thinking in the spiritual realm, and that thou wilt get great glory as a result of our meeting together in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered why there is so much failure recorded in the scriptures? It's quite obvious to an even casual reader of the Word of God that its pages are strewn with the wreckage and debris of men and women who have failed in the faith. This fact of failure tells me two very important things about the Bible. It tells me, first of all, that God, not man, wrote this book. Man tends to gloss over the sins of his contemporaries. Man tends to whitewash the life of his friends, but not God. He hangs the dirty wash out the front bay window in plain view for all to see. When Oliver Cromwell was sitting for his renowned portrait, he noticed the artist pause in a moment of embarrassing hesitancy. And recognizing the artist's dilemma, he said, Sir, paint me wart and all. Or Cromwell had a rather prominent wart on the side of his nose, which disfigured him. And he recognized that the artist was debating, shall I paint him as he is, 
or as the king without flaw. The Spirit of God, friend, whenever he paints a portrait, paints it wart and all. Even the man after God's own heart, David, is portrayed in all of the sin and the tragedy of his experience with Bathsheba. This fact of failure also tells me that the, man, that the God who wrote this book was a God of grace who wanted me to profit by the experience of others. So that these failures are like flashing red lights which say, caution, watch out, danger. It can happen here. I suppose there is no more familiar failure than the defection of Peter recorded here in Mark chapter 14. But I want you to notice tonight that Peter's failure was a process. It always is in the spiritual realm. Will you trace it with me under the direction of the Spirit of God? I want you to notice in verses 26 through 31 that the first mistake that Peter made was that he boasted too much. Our Lord said to the disciples in verse 27, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter, in characteristic Petrine fashion, enters the narrative with a thud. He was the man who coined the expression, don't stand there, say something. He was a man who had a tremendous facility for opening his mouth, putting both feet into it, and wondering why he couldn't walk. I suppose this is the reason why we like Peter so much. He reminds us so much of ourselves. Peter has something to say. It's in the form of a protest. Although all shall be offended, Yet will not I. Lord, you can count on me. The Lord tried to probe Peter's thinking in verse 30, as he said, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter, it's sooner than you think. This was designed to stab him away. But again, Peter says, verse 31, speaking the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. Lord, you can count on me. 
I am so devoted that my devotion is willing to go to the point of death. Now, what was Peter's problem? Well, I submit to you that Peter's problem was not a problem of insincerity. Peter has often been scored for this, but I think not legitimately so here. I think Peter was never more sincere than when he said what he said. He meant every word of it. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in a few moments, he was willing to take on a hundred men single-handedly to back up his claim. Peter's problem, my friends, was not the problem of insincerity. Peter's problem was the problem of ignorance. And that's your problem. That's my problem. You see, Peter didn't know Peter. Peter had a misplaced confidence. He boasted too much. You know, the Christian life is not a difficult life. It's an impossible one. That's why the moment you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit took up his residence in your heart. And the Holy Spirit is your power. The tragedy is this is a truth so hard come by. If you derive nothing from this conference but this truth, your whole life would be revolutionized. If the Spirit of God somehow tonight could etch with a burning on your mind those words of our Lord, without me ye can do nothing. Oh, the finality of those words. Nothing. We tend to think, you see, that really what we need in the spiritual realm is sort of a shot in the arm. We're doing pretty well by ourselves, but occasionally we need the Lord to help us along, sort of push us over, give us the extra thrust. And we forget, my friends, that our need is not partial, it's total. Shortly after I became a Christian, someone wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible this couplet. It's freighted with theological and practical significance. It goes like this. When I try, I fail. When I trust, he succeeds. You know, my friends, the flesh only knows one thing, that's failure. Conversely, the Spirit only knows one thing, that's success. God has no self-improvement program for your flesh. It will be just as ugly 20 years from now as it is right now. 
That's why Christ died, and in his death he judged your flesh. He rendered it inoperative in order that the power of God may be released in your life and in mine. You see, every time you and I think that we can take a step apart from God, we're about to step on a banana peel, spiritually. We're in for a sprawl. That's why Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, Walk by means of the Spirit, and ye will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What is a walk? Well, a walk is a series of steps, each one of which is the beginning of a fall. Every time you take a step, you are beginning to fall. And if you lose your means of support, you sprawl out. That's why in verse 25 he adds, if you live in the Spirit, or better translated, since you live in the Spirit, then by the Spirit, walk. But in the original language, this is a different word. Up in verse 16, he says, walk by means of the Spirit. That word can be translated, walk in the totality of your life, in every area of human experience. Walk by means of the Spirit. When you get down to verse 25, he uses an altogether different word and with significance. Now he says, take each and every step by means of the Spirit. Ever watch a child learn to walk? You ought to study that passage in Galatians. That's God's orthopedics clinic. You ever watch a child learn to walk? How does he learn? Does he sit in the playpen and someday say to himself, My, look at that amazing peripatetic action. I shall now proceed to walk. And get up and walk. Why, of course not. He learns to take a step at a time. But in the process of taking a step, he... Brawls. He say to himself, Shucks, guess I just ain't called to walk. A lot of people like that in the spiritual realm begin to take the steps. The next step you take alone, friend, you are in for a fall. It's automatic. It's not a question of whether you will or will not. You will. And you'll sprawl right out. Well, like I always say, this is for the preachers, for the missionaries, this is for some spiritual elite. Well, my friend, this is for you. You get up and you continue to walk. And each time you take a step, you take it by means of the Holy Spirit. This was Peter's problem. This is my problem. 
I tell you, dear friend, having known the Lord for a few years now, this has been a rather embarrassing searching experience to prepare this message, extremely convicting. For you never get to the place where you don't need to remind yourself of how bankrupt you are, and conversely, how dependent you are upon the Lord. Oh, but you say, uh, you know, brother, I, I memorized 29 verses. How do you think I got up here? Man, I'm a navigator. It's a tremendous privilege. And with every privilege, there is a peril. That's your peril. You know, I know the word. I've memorized it. Why, man, I just spent a week at the Glen. And my friend, you won't be out that little pass and beyond the gate, but what you can step fast on a banana peel. Your experience at the Glen, my friend, will not be a substitute for your dependence upon the Lord. He made a second mistake, found in verses 32 through 42, the second episode in this account. Peter prayed too little. Now let's stop to get the connection. He boasted too much. That's why he prayed too little. The one follows the other as night follows day. Whenever you boast too much, you will pray too little. After all, if my mind is completely adequate for this problem, why pray? If I've got enough money down at the last national bank to meet this given situation, why pray? If I'm competent for the dilemma I am facing, why pray? See, my friend, it's only when you realize that your need is not partial but total that you realize how utterly dependent you are. And this is what prayer is. It is an attitude of dependency, a realization in and of myself, I'm bankrupt. And I'm shut up to God. In verse 32, the Lord goes to a place called Gethsemane. He invited the larger group of disciples to sit while he went forward to pray, and he takes with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. And the scripture says, verse 33, he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy, and he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. 
My friend, that is the heart and essence of prayer. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And he cometh, verse 37, and he findeth them sleeping. Now notice this. And he said unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? In the original language, this is much more forceful. It could be translated, Simon, are you sleeping? You're the last person in the world who should be asleep. And then he adds, Couldst thou, couldst not thou watch one hour? Every now and then someone asks me, What verse of scripture would you suggest we write over the front of our church? I think this would be a good one. And I went into a church. <laughs> I went into a church in California, and believe it or not, there it was, right across the front. Very good for the morning worship service. I love baseball. I played for Wheaton when I was in college, and I enjoy playing with my kids. And occasionally, we get a group together and go out and watch the Dallas team play. And we went out one night. I took a friend of mine that was not particularly interested in spiritual things, but I thought this might provide an opportunity. And uh, we went to the game, and I'm perfectly frank when I tell you that in all of my life I have never seen a more boring game. I mean, friend, I almost fell asleep between pitches. But this guy sitting next to me was fairly frothing at the mouth. He was yelling his head off at what I'll never know. So I invited him to go to church with me next Sunday, and he complied. My friend, I don't think we were ten minutes into the service before this guy was in the second or third stage of anesthesia. <laughs> Out like a light. Find a person tremendously adequate in the physical realm, but he comes to church, you know, and he throws it into neutral. And we endure it for a while, we go under till the boy gets through his peroration. And then we come up for air when the choir finally sings the final amen. Now I want you to notice something. The Lord says to Peter and to us, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Someone says, well, that was Peter's problem. It was deeper than that. The spirit was not willing. Certainly Peter had an excuse, just as you and I do for not praying. But there's a big difference between a good sound reason and a reason that sounds good. He had an excuse. He also had an example. Will you turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 1? Just hold your hand there. Go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 35. Did you know that there are only 52 recorded days in the life of our Lord in the Gospels? And in Mark chapter 1, you have the busiest recorded day in the life of our Lord's ministry. 
It was a day crowded with activity, with a performance of miracle, with teaching. And my friend, no one except the person who has had a public ministry knows the drain of people on an individual. I've done a lot of road work when I was in college and some good hard physical labor, but my friend, I've never worked and been as, as exhausted as in teaching and preaching or just ministering to people in public. And here was a day, and remember our Lord was a man, a man among men. And in verse 35 we read, and in the morning. What morning? My friend, the morning after the busiest recorded day in the life of our Lord. Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Let me ask you, my friend, if Jesus Christ, who had unbroken fellowship and communion with the Father, needed to pray, what must your need be? What must my need be? But so high on the priority list of our Lord was prayer that the next morning he's found in his accustomed place. May I say it very reverently, dear friend, what a rationalization he would have had. Lord, I slept in this morning because I was busy in your service yesterday. But here he is. Now I want you to notice the next verse. And Simon. And they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. You know, this must have been a very impressionable experience. You see, it was Peter who led the search party to find our Lord. And he found him as he frequently did on his knees. What a tremendous example. But you know, Peter's problem is the same as ours. I think the average person, I'm talking even about believers, treats prayer as a calamity item. Right? It's a parachute. It's a good thing to have in case of need, but you hope the emergency never arises. But if it does, you pull prayer and out we come. For example, suppose tonight we were having a time of fellowship here together and I walked in. I said, say, friends, could we stop for just a minute and have a word of prayer? Why, they'd be buzzing all over the place. Everybody said, what, what's the matter? What happened? Who died? Well, we have an accident? Because this is our attitude toward prayer. You know, down in Texas, friend, we do everything in a big way. I mean, if we're going to have a scandal, we, we have a big one, you know. And uh, we have big droughts when we have them. And uh, some of us remember rather vividly the seven-year drought of recent experience. And uh, they were rough days. We were rationed on water and so forth. And I shall never forget picking up the Dallas Morning News and reading an editorial suggesting that we ought to have a day of prayer. Well, this was very interesting. But what was more interesting were the letters to the editors. I wish you could have read some of the letters to the editor that these people wrote in after this editorial. One guy wrote, 
A day of prayer? My God, has it come to that? <laughs> this is real funny, except this is exactly what we believe. This is the one thing in spiritual experience you can't popularize. Try it. You can popularize Bible study. I can announce a Bible study in a church and we can pack it out. You can even make witnessing popular. If you teach people a little about it. They ever get the thrill of leading somebody to Christ? Try to popularize prayer, my friend. Just look at the average prayer meeting. We can't get a corporal's guard. Uh, we can announce we're going to have a big wing ding tonight, boy. You remember musical all of it? Man, they're hanging out the door. Next night we're going to have a prophetic series. That's better. Daniel. Wow. Next night we're going to have a prayer meeting. Tremendous. Lay hold of the Lord. And friend, you think that this was Hiroshima. <laughs> Where, where are the mighty giants? Well, you know, a pressing appointment, I mean, and so forth. And, and before, my friends, we get too holy or pious, just apply it to yourself. You know, my friends, it's easier for me to study my Bible. It's easier for me to memorize the scripture. It's easier for me to teach a Bible class or teach in the seminary. It's easier for me to do everything in the world but pray. That's our hard assignment. And you cannot popularize it. You can't make a floor show out of it. It's just agony. It's wrestling. It's getting down on your knees to recognize, I'm bankrupt, God. Without you, nothing. Let's suppose tonight that you were planning on surgery on the morrow of the next day, and you had reason to believe that it was terminal. Many of you would not be here. You'd be home praying. Or if you came here, you would suggest to someone in charge of the meeting, would you mind if we stopped for just a moment to have a word of prayer? All of us would identify with this, my friend. All of us would pour our hearts out to God for this dear brother or sister in Christ, member of the family. Boy, we'd encourage the person. We'd say, friend, I want you to know I'll be praying for you. But my friend, Tamara, your case may be far more serious than terminal cancer. But who prays? Who wakes up tomorrow with a realization, this is a day that could mean a day of spiritual triumph or tragedy, depending on whether God moves into my life and I start in utter dependency upon him. You boast too much, you'll pray too little. He made a third mistake. It's in verses 43 through 52. It follows. He acted too soon. That follows, doesn't it? If you pray too little, you will always act too soon. And you will act under the impulse of the flesh. Now, you recall the story, I'm sure, 
Judas had sold the Lord for a pitiful sum. In fact, it was so embarrassing to him, it was simply the price of a gorged ox. That in disgust he threw the paltry sum down, he refused to receive it when he realized what was involved. Judas gets a little core of men and he leads them to the place where he himself had been on many occasions to Gethsemane. It was a favorite retreat, a place of spiritual repast for the disciples and our Lord. And he leads them. And the Lord says to them, verse 45, after Judas said, Master, Master, kissed him. Verse 46, they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword. Another gospel tells us it was Peter. And he smote a servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. Now what was this boy trying to do? You get the picture? There was a lot of humor in the Bible. I have a life-size picture of this thing, and, and to me it's really, it's really quite humorous, except for the tragic implication. But it's so true to what you and I do every day. Can't you see this old boy's out like a light? You remember the Lord came on three occasions, and finally he says, Sleep on, gentlemen. And all of a sudden, boy, they see him coming in, and you can see old Peter. Man, this is the time to go into action. <laughs> and he takes his sword out. And I'll tell you what he was doing. Every Roman soldier was required by law to practice at least one hour a day, withdrawing his sword from the sheath and bringing it down over his head with such precision and accuracy that he could hit his opponent's head, covered by a helmet, but welded down the center than the weakest part. And if he could hit that with enough force, he would break the weld and, of course, dispose of the victim. Now, there's no question about the fact that Peter had seen this. Many of the accounts during this period of time tell about soldiers practicing by the hour, drawing this thing out, and some of them became pretty accurate. And old Peter apparently tried to do the same thing, but he had a little problem. He was slightly off target. And he slices off an ear. Now, Peter had a number of strikes against him. In the first place, he was a fisherman, and fishermen make poor swordsmen. In the second place, he was asleep, and I have a great deal of sympathy with him at this juncture. Well, here he is out like a light, and all of a sudden he comes to, to move into action. Some old boy called me up the other night. I don't know what time, 2.33 in the morning. It was just when you're really going out. And this guy wanted to know if this was Joe's Tavern. <laughs> My wife was roaring in the bed. <laughs> just watching me. I was having such a hard time getting the right side of the telephone receiver up to my ear. And I don't know what I told him, but I'll guarantee it wasn't very coherent. And this is Peter's problem. You can just see him coming out of that. 
The third strike he had against him was that he was mad, and people who are mad are never under control. The other gospel that tells us that it was Peter also said, the Lord graciously but firmly rebuked Peter as he says, Peter, you don't understand what it's all about. Peter, put your sword back. If my purposes were carnal, I could summon 12 legions of angels and they'd be immediately dispatched to fight my cause. But my purposes are spiritual. Peter, put your sword back. And he restores the ear. Oh, this is an amazing truth. I want you to grip it and let it grip you. My friends, when Peter should have been active in prayer, he was passive in sleep. When he should have been passive in resignation to the will of God that Christ found in prayer, he's active with the sword. That is my problem. How about you? Are you ever active when you should be passive? You ever passive when you should be active? You ever keep your mouth closed when you should open it? Isn't it amazing how you'll go, have a choice opportunity for witnessing? It's as if you have lockjaw. Do you ever talk when you should be quiet? You know, Mert called you up. I shouldn't tell you this, but this is a famous bromide. And then add to make it more piously, in order that you might pray more intelligently. <laughs> and then they give you the choicest bit of gossip, you know? And friend, you know it ought to die with you and you spew it all over the place. This is exactly what results when you and I act too soon in the impulse of the flesh without prayer. You know, everywhere I go, people say to me, you know, Brother Hendricks, what we need in our church is more workers. No, you don't. You do. But not the way you think. What you need is more worshipers. I've never yet seen a true worshiper who was not a worker. But you know, there are plenty of worship workers. Man, our churches are loaded with it. They got swords, too. And man, they're wielding those things all over the place, like a wild man. Now, this seems strange to you, my friend. You haven't been to a business meeting lately. Boy, I've been to a church business meeting not too long ago. You know, it's an amazing thing. Where these people come from at the business meeting, you know, prayer meeting, where, 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 where are they? But at the business meeting, they come out from under the rocks. <laughs> Oh, these spiritual nephanim, the giants, here they are. You feel like San Fran? Are you a member of this church? <laughs> watch the board, watch the business meeting getting operation. My friend, there are, there are ears all over the floor. There's one dear saint of God said, I've been to a business meeting where it appeared that we booted the spirit out the front door and went at it like cats and dogs. And then the tragedy of the person who's drenched in work 
He's busy. He's on a treadmill. He's knocking himself out. He's at every sad meeting that you've got at the church. And yet when he ends up at the, at, at the tally, what's he got? Flesh. Which only knows failure. And you got the wood, the hay, and the stubble. When the man is drenched in prayer, my friend, then he goes forth to war and to work. But his strokes count. His work is to the glory of God. I want you to see one final mistake he made. I don't want you to miss this one. Final mistake that Peter made. It's found in verses 62, 66 through 72, the last episode. Peter was at the palace. One of the little maids, strolling by, noticed his face, apparently shining from the reflection of the fire. And when she saw Peter warming himself, verse 67, she looked upon him and said, And thou also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not. Neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crowed. What a gracious intervention of God, even to rescue him at this stage. You see, my friend, the last mistake that Peter made was that he thought too late. The cock crowed. And the maid saw him again. She began to say to him that stood by, Say, this is one of them. And he denied it again. A little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereto. He had a Galilean accent. Now I want you to notice verse 71. And he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. Who said that? Well, the very man who said, you can count on me. I'm willing to go to the point of death. And he meant it. But you see, my friend, he didn't know what his heart was capable of. Did you ever work somebody over for falling in sin? You know the man who just ran off with somebody's wife in your church? You know, I'm talking about the boy that was a leading elder. I'm talking about the individual who was known for the spiritual life, you know. Oh, it's so easy, my friends, at that juncture to wrap your smug coats of complacency about you and excoriate that individual by saying good night. Instead of saying, there go I but for the grace of God. Verse 72, the second time the cock crowed. Now underline this in your Bible. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crowed twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. When? Too late. You see, Peter thought. But unfortunately, when the Lord said, Peter, it's sooner than you think, 
That's the time he should have thought. That's the time he was so occupied with Peter. He said, Lord, you, you can count on me. You know what shakes me up more than anything else about the average Christian? About myself. It's not the fact that we sit down and plan to be mediocre. The fact that we just piddle along and we land there. Julian the Apostate in the first century avowed and declared that he would blot out every trace of Christianity. And he went out to task with a vengeance. And he discovered to his disgust that the more he persecuted it, the more it flourished. And finally he recognized that it was a lost cause. And he collected his little group of cohorts that had been decimated through the years from discouragement. He sat them down and in disgust he shouted to them, Bah! Christianity provokes too much thought. Why even the slaves are thinking, which to a Roman mind was incredible. You know, my friend, that's still true. Christianity is not based upon ignorance, it's based upon intelligence, an intelligent understanding of this word. And it's not an accident that wherever Christianity has gone, literacy has gone. Because the revelation of God in this word, my friend, demands a program of literacy so that people can read it, understand it, live by it. But I've often said the person who can read and does not read is no better off than the man who can't read at all. And this is our tragedy. We are thinking too little, too late. A little gal came to see me friend of mine. She said, uh, Prof, get married. I said, I heard about that. Wonderful. Who's the young man? She told me his name. I said, uh, is he a believer? She dropped her head. She said, I was afraid you would ask me that. No, he's not. And she said, don't quote me that Corinthians passage. Be not unequally yoked. I know that. But I'm going to marry you. And she left my office, and she married him. About four months later, this little gal was back in my office. Not the same girl. Same person. Not the same attitude. Her husband had left her wanted a divorce. She leaned over that desk and after she got control of herself, she said, Prof, I've learned something. I said, what did you learn? She said, I've learned that there's something worse than being unmarried. I said, really? What? Being married to the wrong person. That's quite insightful. That's terrific thinking. But unfortunately, too late. You know, there's many an individual. I think of many parents. I work 
as I think I mentioned to you, with the juvenile department in our city. And I find there are many parents with whom I counsel who are really thinking. Believe me, they are thinking. They have never thought as incisively and penetratively as they are thinking right now. But unfortunately, it's a little late. The boy's 17. We've got him up for 17 counts. He's going to spend three years at Gatesville. They're thinking. But it's late. You know, there's many a Christian parent, my friend, who's living here as if he were living here for eternity. All right, we got plenty of time. And before you know it, the years are rolling by, my friend, and the kid's 18, 19, and he's out of your home and gone, and what you have done, you have done. And the problem is to back this up and to think. This morning I was walking down the road having a time of fellowship with the Lord, thinking over this message. You know, my friends, God has given you a choice opportunity this week. I was thinking, I cannot imagine a more ideal environment conducive to thought. I cannot imagine a more ideally structured program than the one we have here at the Glen for you to think. The greatest tragedy, my friend, will be for you to walk out of that gate come Saturday or whenever you leave, having had all kinds of exposure, but never having sat down to think, to think for yourself. To think about this witnessing. Would the world go to hell, my friend, if it were completely dependent upon my witnessing? Are the things of time far more important to me than the things of eternity? Do I have an inverted value system? This is the opportunity that God is giving you, my friend, to think before it's too late. Peter thought that the dastardly deed had been committed. What a tragedy. To end up at the end of one's life and to have said it might have been. I can still remember that week at the Glen. What an opportunity. Away from the telephone, away from the kids, away from all of the things that tend to distract and to give me excuses for not doing what I'm supposed to do. And that was my opportunity to think. But I didn't. Or to be able to look back and say, that was the time. I can still remember it. My life patterns were changed as God moved in with his word, and as I took time not to think about the guy or the gal next to me, but to think about me and my relationship to Jesus Christ. You know the most wonderful thing about this story? In John 1.42, our Lord met Peter for the first time. He penned a little thumbnail sketch of Peter's life. He said, Thou art Simon. Thou shalt be called Peter which by interpretation means rock. Now, it took the Lord considerable time to get Peter Simonized. Some rough experience. Simon out of him, my friend, and the rock into him. 
The wonderful thing of the story, my friends, is that Peter's failure was not final nor fatal. For it was Peter, I remind you, that rugged fisherman who preached that great sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 were swept into the kingdom of God. It was men of Peter's ilk of whom the pagan world testified, these are they who have turned the world upside down. The missionary was translating the word of God. She translated the gospel by Mark in the book of Acts. She read it back to the informant, a little girl. And as they went over into the book of Acts, the little girl said, Peter, is that the same man? <laughs> sure. And yet, he's distinctively different. And so can you be. If Peter were to stand here tonight, and I believe he has, through the word of God, I think he would say to you and to me, early Christians of this 21st century, don't boast so much. Watch the danger of a misplaced confidence. Don't pray so little. Don't act so soon under the impulse of the flesh. And I think he would underscore at the end and whatever you do, my believing friend, think. Think before it's too late. Shall we pray? Loving Father, how gracious of thee to provide thy word, and particularly these stories, stories of significance, principles, our Father, that thou dost desire to weave into the fabric of our life. We thank thee, our Father, for what thou hast been teaching us tonight. We pray that thou wilt make us apt pupils, we might be more than hearers of the word, but doers as well. In grace, thou hast provided us this week to do some soul-searching, to do some thinking under thy direction. We pray, our Father, that it shall be marked as a week of growth and of challenge and of decision. A week, our Father, in which we hear not the voice of a man, this will never suffice but the voice of God. We pray believingly through Christ our Lord.